Okay. So we spoke about how the the chachma itself in the godly soul is in a in a state of sleep, or the translator calls dormant, whereas the passion and yearning to be subsumed within God that results from that chachmor, right, or the chachmor drives a person to, that's not a sleep, that's in a state of exile. Right? And that's why we call the, the innate love, the natural love of every Jew, a hidden love. Right? Because where is it hidden? Where is it hidden? That's not what it says. No, I'm sad. In the sackcloth of Klippa, from which our mundane desires stem, right? It's, it's, it's hidden in our animalistic drives. Because it's in a state of exile. And this is so long as a person's mind is preoccupied with their worldly existence, as we said. What happens when a person is confronted with a test of matter of faith? Then the chachma awakens from the slumber and exerts its influence because of the divinity that resides in Chachma. Right? Um, and, I, and one of the things I pointed out in the last class was right that it's, that it, it's not that the, the, the way the text is written um, in the verse that it quotes is that, so to speak, Hashem wakes up. Right? So much that the person becomes aware of Hashem but the, the presence of Hashem within the person wakes up. Now, um, the question that we're going to now be dealing with is what is the effect of that? In other words, a simple, a simple reading would think, okay, the person comes to a place of self-sacrifice, all of a sudden now they have a desire, of the wake, the, the, their desire to come close to Hashem has woken up, right? But that can't be right, because we already said the desire to close to Hashem was not asleep, it was in exile, right? So the, the kind of, the kind of sh- superficial understanding of this idea is incorrect. So what's really happening? Okay, so the Chachma wakes up. The, the sense of Hashem within the person wakes up. Okay, that's very nice. But the, the drive, the passion to be subsumed within Hashem is in exile in the person's um, you know, spirit of folly, the klipa, the animal soul, however you want to put it. Right? How does that problem get solved such that the person actually is going to choose martyrdom um, rather than compromise uh, the tenets of Judaism? So we are on page 82 in the right-hand column. So it says, And the Lord woke like one who had been asleep. That's referring to the idea that the state, the divinity within Chachma. To withstand the test of faith in God without any reasoning, knowledge, or intelligence that may be comprehended by Him. And to prevail over the cleap and temptations of this world, whether per- permitted or prohibited, to which He had been accustomed, and even to despise them and to choose God as his portion lot, yielding to him his soul to suffer martyrdom in order to sanctify his name. <laughs> so what happens to this person? This person, and I'm going to work backwards. What does it say? This person that we're talking about has been accustomed to the klipa, the ungodly things, temptations of this world, not only the permitted things, even the prohibited things, Right? And that has been how they live their life. And then what happens? A shift occurs. What is the person's relationship to, the, to these things that the person was um, attached to, focused on? Not only does it say that they're willing to let them go, but they actually shift to despise them. It's a very radical change. Okay, so let's make this concrete. Person spends their whole life pursuing money, right? 
Could we imagine something occurring drastically at a, very, very quickly that could cause the person to forego their obsession with money? Could you imagine an event like that occurring? Yeah. What, what would you imagine? A person, their whole life's obsessed with making money, making money, making money. What could happen that could get a person to radically just let go? That's, just, that's not important. They just forego all of that. You th- I mean, some people know yeah. their head, they could imagine it, so like, describe it. Like, what, what, what kind of an event? Because we, we don't understand this, like... Family member got sick. If family member got sick. Died, it would seem like a picture of, like, right. right. And that, okay. Can you imagine that that would, event that would cause them to despise making money? See the difference? There's one thing, okay, like, money's not important, like... Like, you can imagine, like, you encounter something of greater significance. As long as it's of sufficiently greater significance, it renders the other thing insignificant in comparison. Fine. But that doesn't change its valence from a positive to a negative. So what kind of thing could occur that could get a person who was pursuing money their whole life, and don't be religious, please, because the point here is we want to use this as an analogy to understand religious things. What kind of event could occur to a person that could cause a person to radically shift in a very short period of time from pursuing money as their goal in life to despising making money. If they see that the whole pursuit was giving them troubles that were really great. Okay. But the thing they value is money, so how could the, if the thing, the thing I value can't be the thing giving me trouble. If it was like consuming them, like if they, they, if their greed was like causing them to like, like have drug addiction or if like, well, they, like if they're, if it's, if it's really causing, if it's like constricting them, it's like causing so much like anguish. Well, the fact the person values making money, um, let me go back. A person really values making money. That's really, really, really important to them, right? And then something occurs in their life, right? Like a family member gets sick, you know, and money, you know, is rendered insignificant relative to this new thing that shows up in the person's life, right? By the way, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Um, it could have been a positive thing. Like nobody mentioned like having their first child. That's something that occurs to people. People that like making money, career is like the thing they value, and then they have a child. Like, oh, I, I don't actually value that nearly as much as I thought I did. Would they despise money? No, but so that that here's the thing. Th- these are cases like the notion that something gets displaced, and you're willing to forego it because you 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 discover you encounter something of greater significance, of higher value. That makes intuitive kind of sense, but. When you started trying to explain like why you would despise it, you had to like introduce like these complicated things. Well, you're obsessed with money, and the money makes you get involved in drugs. The drugs are like, it, 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 like what if I, what if somebody, so it's the drugs. Like if I could be obsessed with money without like having a drug addiction, so fine. Like there's no issue with the money. Like kind of money, money makes you greedy, and then maybe like your family leaves you, and then and you realize that like you realize the greed that the money was causing you. And okay, so you okay. Despise. Here we're on to something. Let's go a little bit deeper for a moment. Why would your family leave you if you're greedy? Because money is more important to you than your family. Your priorities are in the wrong place. Really? Okay, your priorities are in the wrong place, you have no space for them. Okay. Or maybe if it's in danger. Well, I want to, I want, see, the thing is, I want to be, I want to th- deal with things, uh, because it's an analogy, I don't want to deal with things that are, that are, that are, that are going to be secondary. Because those don't always carry over, right? Not every time, it's not in, always the time that someone is greedy, they do dangerous things. A person can be extremely greedy and also um, extremely cautious. Um, <clears throat> there's a man named Warren Buffett. Have you heard of Warren Buffett? Yes. Warren Buffett is a very greedy man. Who is he? He's a very rich man and spends his life trying to make more money. He has more money than any person could possibly do with their money. Now, I'm not saying he's an evil man. That's not the same thing, but... He, but the reason why I brought him up, um, he's also a very cautious person. Like he does not take, like one of the reasons why he's so wealthy is he thinks very well and hard about like, how risky is this? What are the trade-offs? Because he really wants to make money and really doesn't want to lose money. So he doesn't want to end up doing something that's going to ruin his life. 
So you, it's an independent thing whether a person is greedy and a person is engaging in risky behavior. Those are actually independent things. And by the way, you have people opposite. People who engage in risky behavior are not so greedy. Um, not, it's not the, but you, you're on something else. Right? If a person's greedy, their priorities are in the wrong place, I mean, space for other people. Let's go a little bit deeper into greed. That's why I actually use the example of money. What is greed? Like, if I want something, does that make me greedy? No. It's when you want it in excess. When I want something in excess it's that not, makes me it's greedy? Never enough. Yeah. But if it's never enough, isn't that what love is? <coughs> love is a desire to always get closer and closer and closer and closer. Oh, it is. That's, that's how it's defined in Chassidus, yes. Insatiability and greed. In other words, we might say that greed has an insatiable quality, but we wouldn't want to reduce greed to just the same thing as insatiability. This is a, a, a thing we always want to be careful when we're analyzing things. Right? The fact that something is a characteristic of a thing doesn't mean that that defines it entirely. By the way, um, submission... Genuine submission to what is transcendent also has the characteristic of being ongoing, that you can never be, submit enough, which is actually the idea of tomorrow's sphere, hod shabahod, submission within submission, that you can never, you know, if, if, in encountering the infinite, you can never surrender enough. Okay, so, so the notion that something is, can, can never be fulfilled or is insatiable or can, can never be satisfied has an infinite quality to it. It's true that I would say that, you know, greed does have an insatiable thing. I mean, the way the Talmud puts it, someone who has 100 wants 200, someone who has 200 wants 400. There's an insatiability um, that's an aspect of greed. But what else can we say about greed? Make something greedy. So if I have a desire and it's insatiable, it doesn't necessarily going to be greedy. What other ingredient do I need? Yeah. I want, to, I want to avoid any religious terminology because I want, I, I want to insist that we have like a simple human understanding and then we're going to carry that over to God because our animal souls don't understand spirituality. Our godly souls get very excited when we use spiritual words and our animal souls go to sleep. So we want to do it the reverse. We want our animal soul to be engaged so it learns something. What ingredient? So insatiable desire... Well, no, I could say a person is greedy, but there are other things that suppress the greediness, right? That's just people of complex psychology. So, like, any, any particular attribute may only be a small part of a person's life. That doesn't count, right? Selfishness? Selfishness. Good. Selfishness. And that's what I'm going to Selfishness, and this, I'm going to use the word selfishness to mean something very precise, at the expense of others. Okay? In other words, like this. If there's an infinite plate of cookies and I take as many cookies as I want, I'm not being selfish. I might be being hedonistic, but I'm not being selfish. Why? Because no matter how many cookies I take, there's still enough cookies for everyone else, right? But if there's a finite number of cookies, right? And I have a desire for cookies that's insatiable. And in that experience of desire, I see nothing wrong with taking cookies, thus depriving other people of cookies, then I would be greedy. So I'm going to make a very, very interesting argument. I want you to think about it for a minute. If there is 25 cookies, actually, we'll do this after the math slightly differently. There's 24 cookies, and there's 12 people in the class, and I take two cookies. Am I being greedy? Why not? So I want to argue that I am being greedy, but the greed is being tempered by something else. This is what I want to get at. Because what do we say? That's, is it not the case that by me eating those two cookies, everyone else now has less cookies to eat? After all, one could have two cookies and the person who wanted three would get a third cookie, right? Now, right? That, that's, like that, I am saying me having my two cookies is more important than any person in this room having three or four cookies. Now, the reason why you didn't want to say that that's greedy, which I really understand, and if I wasn't making this class and going to this level, I wouldn't say that, is because, well, it's fair. 
Right? And what we do is we say, okay, as long as the greed is being mediated by some kind of notion of fairness, then, then we will accept it, we will allow it, we don't see anything wrong with it. We don't see anything noble about it, right? No one thinks you're a good person for taking the two cookies, but no one thinks you're a bad person. Because as long as the greed is kept within the, the fence, the pen, the corral of fairness, we tolerate it, we accept it. That makes sense? Good? Okay. When is that not true? This is what I want to get at. When is this not true? When is it not true that fairness makes greed acceptable? So I'll come back to the money thing, trust me. What, what kind of social situations, if you're, because if you're, remember, I said, if, if there's a finite resource and I have a desire for it, finite whatever, by me taking it, I'm depriving of someone else, right? So I'm prioritizing me over them, right? It's coming at the expense of someone else. That's what it means to be greedy, right? Most situations say, as long as your greed is limited by a notion of fairness, we're okay with that. We'll accept it. We're not going to label that as evil. Not good, but not evil. Tolerable. When does greed become unacceptable, even if it's limited by fairness? Does it have to be like a life or death situation? No. It's a common situation, actually. It's a good, important advice in life we're going to get to in a moment. Okay, if you're in a caretaker role, um, that might be the case. I want you to imagine that you're married. And now, I want you to imagine that you do everything along the lines of, there's four cookies, so I get two and you can have two. I did the dishes, which is X number of units of effort for household work, so therefore you correspondingly have to do an equal number of household. Right? If you start using fairness to mediate things in a marriage or in a friendship, does it work? No. Why not? So actually, I'm going to disagree with you. I say, I really, no, I, I think this is, no, I think this is important because I think it's putting the place in the, it's in the wrong thing. It's not about the fairness. It's about the greed. How do we know? Let's go back. I take, there's, there's 24 cookies. There's 12 people in the class. I take two cookies, right? So if I take two cookies, right? I'm greedy. I want, by me having what I want, I'm depriving others. But as long as it doesn't go outside the bounds of fairness, we're all okay with that, right? Right? The reason we're all okay with that is because the issue here is how to avoid conflict, not how to create connection. So the problem with greed and conflict is that the greed has, is not greed itself, is that when the greed goes outside of a tolerable threshold, and we use fairness to do that, right? So if I take two cookies, you take two cookies, and we got two cookies, right? You know, assuming we're dealing with normal human beings, right? That, that alleviates any sense of conflict, right? Fairness, but if you're trying to create closeness, greed itself is the problem. Because what do we say is a characteristic of greed? That I am selfish, right? Me having what I want can come at the expense of you, and that's okay with me, right? Well, if that's what's motivating me, if that's what's driving me, that itself prevents connection. Limiting it by fairness is not going to help. Do you see the difference? By the way, I'm going to say that it actually is important in a marriage and in a friendship for things to be fair. but it's a different notion of fairness because it's working slightly differently. I'll explain to you what I mean, okay? So what, what you need is that, that a person, that, that the, the person's desire, even if it's insatiable desire, shouldn't have that selfish quality, right? Now, here we can say that maybe it's not black and white, selfish has come in degrees, right? But um, so the more there is a desire for a togetherness, rather than a possessiveness, the more some kind of bond occurs, right? Okay, this is where you need the fairness. Um, in a relationship which is, not which is not defined by taking care of somebody, like a parent and a child, a small child like an infant, you do need the sense that it is fair, that, 
that my investment in the togetherness is being reciprocated by your investment in the togetherness. Now, that doesn't turn out and translate into necessarily practical, like I do 50% of the dishes and you do 50% of the dishes. See what I'm saying? It's, it's a different, fairness is still relevant. It's a different kind of fairness, right? You, can't, you have a friendship, let me mention friendship, where you care about getting along and being close and being there for each other far more than the other person does. Is that friendship gonna survive? Mm. Now, if you care as much as you can, and they care as much as they can, but they're going through a hard time so much they can as much less, we say, okay, they're putting 100% of them and I'm putting 100% of me. My 100% is bigger, but that doesn't compromise the friendship. See the difference? So the issue with the greed, right, is that you displace everybody else for yourself. Okay? So now... If a person makes their going back to the money thing, if a person's whole life was a pursuit of money, right? And they discover the value of family. In any way, positively or negatively, right? And that value becomes really significant to them. How do they now feel about their pursuit of money? It's not that simply it's being displaced or being lowered in priority because greed is the antithesis of the, the bonds of family. You see, that, you see what I'm saying? Like, like, so it's like, where's the, where, where is the conflict? Is it that because I'm spending so much time making money, it's coming at the expense of my family? Okay, then it's just a technical issue. No, it's that I was, the, the, my relationship with money means I was in a state where I could never have a genuine connection with my wife or my children or my parents or whatever. Because to, to pursue money is to be selfish. And to pursue family is to not be selfish. I don't mean it's selfless. I don't mean it's like self-sacrifice. It's pursuing a togetherness. You know, everything has to be reduced to a binary. See the difference? Okay. So when you dis- so when, when, when a, if a person were to were to discover that not there's a technical conflict between what I've been re- used to and what I've been pursuing and my new value, but that there that that in essence they're in opposition, then the thing you used to pursue becomes despised. But if all there is is a technical conflict, it just gets displaced. You don't despise it. Okay. I, I call this my magic wand uh, um, test. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? Would you wave your magic wand so that your pursuit of money would never come at the expense of your family? Or would you wave a magic wand that you wouldn't be greedy anymore? If it's the first one, right, then you haven't really discovered that greed cuts against being together with others. It's just that, you know, the greed is maybe practically inhibiting you, impinging upon your ability to do the things of togetherness. There's a deeper realization to say, like, no, no, look, if this is what I want, this is the opposite of it. If I want the light, I can't, there's no, no, if I want the light, I despise the dark. That's what that means. Okay, now, so outside the time, if you're a practical life rule, there's a difference between um, personal relationships, right, and business relationships. Business relationship is about cooperation and being productive and avoiding conflict. Personal relationship is about creating a sense of togetherness, right? And so it is a perfectly legitimate motivation in business or larger social interactions is illegitimate on a personal level, but both have a role for fairness. That makes sense? That's just like an important like life thing, right? So if like, like when I walk into a store, I'm perfectly aware that the person owning the store is interested in making money, and the person working at the store is interested in making money, and I walked into the store interested in getting my product or service, right? And nobody's like bothered by any of that because we're not trying to form togetherness. We're trying to get our needs met in a way that's constructive rather than creating conflict, right? Okay, so now, Let's go back down to our religious person. So we've got a person, and they've been living life, as it says here, accustomed to klipa, prohibited klipa, prohibited klipa, right? That's how they live their life. Why all of a sudden do they despise everything? What happened? They realize it totally It's antithetical to Hashem. It's antithetical to the truth of holiness. Okay. 
So that would mean like this. Would this person, therefore, feel like they're giving up something for God? If I say, you have a choice. Let's say, let's say you really value, going back to it, you really value being with your family and togetherness and friendship, right? You really value that. And I say, you have a choice. Either sacrifice your family for a life of greed or give up the pursuit of money to be with your family. Like, well, I mean, that's kind of like, what's the big deal? I mean, I, I don't want the greed. Right? It doesn't speak to me, right? So it's not the person, right? even, the, even calling it sacrifice is a little bit misleading. What is the author describing is that there's this shift from the thing having this positive valence. When the Chachma wakes up, it's seen as the antithesis of the truth. The antithesis of who we really are inside. And at that point, everything that used to register as positive registers as a negative. And therefore, it's not, it's not a sacrifice to let go of things that you find negative to hold on to something that you see as positive. It's, just, it's, it's, an auto, it's, it's obvious. So how do I know, there's a negative, how do I know that I'm not really, I'm not really experiencing the serious nefesh? It's a struggle. Yeah, if it's a struggle. If it feels like I have to prioritize my connection to Hashem over other things, then we can't say the Chachmah has truly woken up. Okay. So it's, it's, it's almost like this person has become a different person, which is why when we spoke about Messias Nefesh way back in the beginning, I said that experiencing genuine Messias Nefesh would actually be very traumatic, right? Because you've had a completely inversion of your own psychological experiences of how you see yourself and how you experience reality. What a moment before was positive is now you experience as negative, and a moment before you didn't care about now is the only thing that matters to you. Now, that shift is because of the Chachma waking up. And I'm just gonna, because I wanna keep the idea clear, I'm gonna just go a little before what he says. Well, once that's the case, is the love gonna be in exile anymore? The thing that was, the thing that was corrupting and distorting our passion for Hashem, what happens to it? You know, if you're in exile, one of the ways of getting out of exile is when the, the you know, whatever is exiling you disappears. And that's basically what happens. The awareness that's generated by the, by the godliness and chachma manifesting means that the, that part of ourselves, which was exiling the hidden love, now is seen as a total negative. It loses its hold, and now the love is free. Is the animal soul transformed or vanquished? The answer is neither. The correct answer... I mean, he's going he's gonna, he, he's gonna to actually use the example we go on of, of it's made null, he says null, and it says vanish. He uses the example of it melting away like wax. Here's the problem, though. This is, this is referring to the animal soul's hold on the person, not the animal soul itself, which means the moment the mysterious nefesh is over, you are back where you were, right? So if I had to use a word, I wouldn't say it's... Um, Transformed, and I wouldn't say it's vanquished. I would say it's best way of putting it is that it's suspended. Now, which means effectively it is vanished. Effectively it melts away while you are experiencing this process, while you're experiencing this event, right? But afterwards, nothing's actually happened to the animal soul, right? It's not like someone who encounters martyrdom and miraculously survives all of a sudden becomes a perfectly righteous person afterwards. That's not the case. Does Chachma only wake up in the case of martyr? Um. That's what we're going to get to next. Okay, that's like the next little bit. Okay? So, so... Right? So you literally have a complete inversion, right? Hashem was a completely... And again, I'm not... Hashem, the absoluteness of Hashem was just basically non-functional in, in the life of the person. And worldly concerns were, were the what guided and structured the person's life, whether permitted or forbidden. And in a moment, all that gets inverted, that the worldly things are denial of the absoluteness of God. And so like they're now seen as a total negative. And the absoluteness of God is the only thing 
that one finds compelling and feels the need to return to. That's a very radical shift, which now the author points out that this radical shift is like, it's a bit astonishing. For even though the Klippas had prevailed over him all of his life and he was impotent against them, as the rabbis have said, the wicked are under control of their heart. I'm going to stop here. So we're describing a person, right? We're describing a person. We're shifting now from any, any Jew. Because we, we start off that any Jew um, that their, their mind is engaged in, in mundane concerns is really in, the, in, the, in their godly soul is in exile. Or at least the, the, the hidden love is in exile. But now he's moving to like not just you know, any Jew, like a genuine sinner. A genuine sinner, our sages say that they're under control of the heart. They're they're being controlled by the heart. Meaning the power to overcome their desires for ungodly things has been taken away from them. So this goes back to chapter 17. So we did a little review. The normal psychological structure of how Hashem created people is what's called the mind rules the heart. What does that mean? That the mind and heart have a relationship like a teacher and a, and a, and a, and a loyal disciple. Could the disciple make mistakes? Absolutely. But whenever the teacher is clear what is correct, the disciple will absorb it, follow it, and move accordingly. Right? And that's basically how God created people. That when your mind is clear that this is true, this is real, this is important, the heart will fall in line. If the heart is not falling in line with the mind, that either means something is, the mind isn't clear or something is broken. Now, there are people who are called tzaddikim. It says tzaddikim are in control of their hearts. What does that mean? Can you just decide that you want to love somebody and then voila, you love them? Can you just decide you don't want to be angry with someone and voila, you forgive them? No, it's a process, right? Okay. If God, in as much as we're going to describe to God having emotions... If God were to have emotions, he would just have to decide that he wants them, right? And voila, he would have them. So the Medrash says that Siddiquim are compared to God. And when we see whenever it speaks about God and his heart, it always says, puts God outside of his heart, addressing the heart, his heart. Like it says, God spoke to his heart. And we see some expressions in the Tanakh by righteous people. So we see that there's a level where a person can come transcend the normal human functioning and kind of almost take direct control over their emotional states and their desires. Those are tzaddikim. But you also have the inverse. We see by wicked people, it says the opposite, that they said in their hearts, meaning that their hearts completely encapsulated them, that they were being dominated by their hearts. And the altar says, that's not normal functioning. That is a punishment for a person's wickedness. That if a person pursues wickedness, what he calls a rush of MS, um, which basically means that they go against God and they make peace with that, that they're going against God. They come to a level of acceptance with that, that they're going against God. Then in as much as it relates to God, Hashem takes away their ability to develop an emotional attachment to Hashem. It doesn't mean that in every other area of life they're dysfunctional, but it means in that. And you have a, so if a person lives life and they prioritize their, their, their mundane existence at the expense of what God wants. It doesn't really matter the amount of sitting. And they make peace with that. What ends up being the result? They become unable to cultivate, forget just decide, to even cultivate genuine feelings of attachment to Hashem that are of their own making. And therefore, as much as they might be able to control their behavior to not sin, they certainly cannot be devout or pious in any way. And that's the person we're talking about. And then all of a sudden, boom, giving up their life for God seems like the most obvious thing. Like, how could they do otherwise? Like, like it's, not, it's not even a sacrifice. How does that shift get made? It's a radical, radical shift. And the answer to that is, yet when he faces a test challenging his faith in the one God, which has its root in the uppermost heights of holiness, namely the fact of Chachma, the divine soul, which is called the light of the angels of blessed is he, then all the klipas are made null and void and they vanish as though they've never been in the presence of the Lord. And then he gives a bunch of verses. So what causes that change is that this is a matter challenging his faith in the one God. Okay. Now what... Now we have to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. This person is not like such a devout person that faith is a high priority for them, right? 
So this goes back to the fact that the Chachma is not an exile. The Chachma is merely sleeping, right? So as long as the issue doesn't pertain to the core truth of God, the Chachma can legitimately remain sleeping. Um, this is a, an analogy for a different thing. Um, used for us, something else, but it's appropriate here. The, the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, had an older brother who was known as the Reza. It's an acronym for his name, Rebbe Zalman Aaron. And the Reza was, a, was very, very fearless. This person just didn't get afraid. Um, one time there was a fire in the town of Lubavitch. Now, the, these towns in Russia, everything was made of wood, so if there's a fire means the whole town could burn down. It's a serious issue. So there's a fire. Not even in his house. There's a fire. So there's a fire. Like, everyone needs to get up and everyone needs to, like, you know, do things to protect themselves or whatever. And he was sleeping. So someone came and woke him up and said, there's a fire. And he looks up and he says, when it gets to that part of the courtyard, wake me up. I went back to sleep. <laughs> now, I mean, th- th- that actually was, the story is used to illustrate a different point. But why am I bringing it up here? Got to there and they woke up. Right. It's like, it's like, like, what's happening over right? What's happening over there is remote, so I can sleep. That that's the core thing. As right, remember when we're sleeping, we can't say we're completely detached from our surroundings. Proof being, an alarm clock will wake us up. Right, something will wake us up. So what is it that wakes up chachma? Something that directly pertains to chachma. So something where there is an clear denial of God <coughs> will wake up the Chachma. What's a clear denial of God? Idolatry is a clear denial of God. What about eating non-kosher food? Is that a clear denial of God? No. That might be it is a denial of God, but the key word here is clear. Yeah? Um, is... What? You said it will wake it up? A clear denial of God will wake it up. So, so as long as it is not something that deals with like, like a denial of God in an overt way, okay, so that, then the Chachma is sleeping. In other words, there's a kind of paradoxical thing about the Chachma. Chachma is a kind of absoluteness to it. So on the one hand, when the Chachma wakes up, how much tolerance does it have for anything ungodly? Zero, right? Every ungodly thing becomes seen as a negative. On the other hand... If the Chachma is sleeping, only something which is an absolute denial of God will wake it up. Does this make sense? And if you, if you think about it, 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 the same idea leads to both things, right? If I say, if, if, if I say that it's all or nothing, then either the Chachma is going to be like, well, this is, not, this is not the totality of Judaism, so I don't need to get involved, Right? Or if it's involved, then there's no room for anything else. Um, the Reza, who I mentioned was the older brother. So he was one time asked if his younger brother, who became the Rebbe, was really qualified to be the Rebbe. Um, so he said, there, between any two extremes, there's a bunch of gradations. Like there's the poorest person, there's the richest person, there's people in the middle, right? Smartest person, dumbest person, people in the middle. He says, with a Rebbe, you either are a Rebbe or you're not a Rebbe. It's an absolute. There's no middle ground. And he says, one thing I know about my brother is he's not a faker. Um, okay. But that's kind of how Chachma works. So now to answer your question, there is a kind of way you can trigger the Chachma a little bit, which is not what Al-Trebbe says, which is, what if something really is seen as a clear denial of God? Will that wake up the Chachma if it's not like... Unless you're doing it. No, so, for instance, I'll give you an example, okay? Um, I think I mentioned this example before, but, but I'll, I'll sort of review again. There's a, there's a discussion um, whether someone who violates Shabbos... Actually, there's a rule that someone who violates Shabbos is not count for Jewish communal participation because denying Shabbos is like denying the whole Torah. Um... 
but there's a, there's, a, there's a common view that if a person doesn't keep Shabbos due to the way that they were raised or they're secular, or even they're not, I say secular, but they're in a secular environment that it influenced them, then maybe we can say that it's, they're, they're not actively denying it. And if the fact they show interest in actually participating and showing up and show, there could be room to be lenient, which is why like someone who violates Shabbos may or may not be counted for a or given an aliyah depending on context and the shul and whatever. Okay. So there was a, an argument that was made um, in the 60s and 70s in the United States, that even if you're going to be lenient with a Shabbos violator, you can't be lenient with someone who intermarries. Why? Because that was overtly. Because that, that, like, like, intermarrying is like, a, like an absolute denial of, of being Jewish. Now, what's interesting is, is that like an inherent thing about the re- nature of intermarriage versus the nature of Shabbos? Or is that a product of certain like things in the society? That was just a product of things in the society. Those it's we know that because like if you go through, I see your hand just one second. If you go through the Talmud and things like that, you don't see that distinction being made. And arguably, I would say nowadays, I don't know that the distinction still holds. But there was a period of a few decades after World War II that that distinction probably did hold. Yes. So this simple, simple, simple answer is like this. The Jewish people have a covenant with God. That covenant defines everything about their existence. Therefore, setting aside the legalities of it, which the Torah prohibits it, it's incoherent to have a marriage with someone outside of the covenant. That has nothing to do with, 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 with converts. and There's nothing to do with lineage. So it's not like, oh, these people you can't marry. But if, if my life is, de- is, is defined um, in every aspect of its being with this covenant with God, I cannot create a family with somebody who is outside of that covenant. Um, that's a conceptual matter. And then the Torah actually just goes and prohibits it. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Now, within Judaism, certain people can't marry converts. That's a totally separate issue, right? So the issue is not, it's, it's, it's not a ethnic issue. It's a covenantal issue. That's the bottom line. Um, and like you can have people who maybe are not orthodox and you had a whole period of doing the whole notion of orthodoxy and keeping Torah and mitzvahs in that sense may have like been something that they were not sensitive to but the notion of intermarrying is kind of being a basic violation of who we are as Jewish people remained um, I would say that's definitely unfortunately weakened in the past few decades um, and then you can have and, and, and you could have this about other things. In other words, a person may have this about certain mitzvahs. In other words, if a person is more sensitive, there are certain mitzvahs that are like that. Um, I think I mentioned in a previous class um, that the number of women that keep the laws of Nida in Israel far surpassed the number of women who identify as religious, which is interesting. Um, uh, same thing with like Chometz on Pesach. So, so there is some, and you'll find different Hasidic texts that'll set the threshold at different places. Um, the previous Rebbe, um, actually, when he was in communist Russia, and um, he was, there was a whole miracle of him being released from his um, death sentence, imprisonment, and exile, um, he saw this, he said, This is a victory for everyone who is even willing to identify as a Jew, right? Um, so you can have like, you know, I would say the far extreme of this idea is merely just, you know, identification as a Jew, you know, and it can become as sensitive to any of the so-called serious mitzvahs like Yom Kippur, Chametz on Pesach and things like that. Um, but, the, but the conceptual matter is that these things are a denial of in a very overt and absolute way of God. Um, and what the Alter calls is idolatry, and he's going to develop the idea of idolatry, what, that, what idolatry really is. Um, so as long as it registers as that, the Chachma wakes up. If it doesn't register that way, the Chachma stays dormant. Okay? So the standard case of that, you know, I mean, if you were to read through the Tanakh, what is like the basic thing that Judaism is all about? Um, be loyal to God and don't, don't worship other gods, Right? So, you know, trial uh, tests of denying one's faith, uh, converting to other religions, like that would be the standard thing that would wake up the Chachma, and because that really touches on the absoluteness of God in, a, in the really overt way. Right? 
Um, so it comes down to like understanding. What? It comes down to like understanding. It doesn't really come down to understanding. It comes down to actually, it, it, it comes down to two things, possibly three. One is the essence of what is the, what is the, what is the absolute truth of Hashem. What is like the real unity of Hashem that Chachma gets and what is the denial of that that Chachma absolutely rejects? So it's like, what is the essence of holiness? What is the essence of Klippa? Um, and that's something the author starts developing chapter 20 through 22, okay? In greater detail. And then he channels that into understanding what every mitzvah is and every sin is. Um, and in that sense, it just wakes up when, when there's an issue of you know, denying God. So atheism, paganism, Christianity, you know, etc. Um, things that go against that. However, there is an issue of sensitivity. Sensitivity is not the same thing as understanding. Sensitivity is entirely different than understanding. Um, where a person can sense how really in this mitzvah, this is really also the same thing. And they, not they understand, but they sense it. And so it takes on that quality for them. Notice the truth is every mitzvah is an affirmation of the absolute truth of Hashem and every mitzvah, is, every sin is a denial of that for reasons we'll get into in later chapters. A person may not understand that at all, but they may have a sensitivity to it. One second, one second. No, the sensitivity has nothing to do with understanding. It has nothing to do with understanding. It, 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 it's like... Um, Some people have better hearing, some people better seeing, some people can pick up nuances and taste better. So you're saying it's something someone has or doesn't, but can't really be cultivated? For our purposes right now. It may be cultivated, but, but I mean, even those things can be worked on. But it's not the same thing as understanding. Okay. Then you have something else, which is association, which is different. So it could be that a person doesn't have a sensitivity, but their early experience is heavily associated a particular mitzvah with you know, the fundamentals of being Jewish. And so it kind of has this kind of effect of it's treated that way. That's because of a psychological association. None of this has to do with understanding. And the whole point is it doesn't have to do with Because understanding is something you have to work on and develop. And we're talking about this doesn't, you know, doesn't. So you may have a person, for instance, who will have Messiris Nefesh, not just in regards to, say, Christianity, not to become a Christian, um, but maybe not to intermarry, right? Which is actually not on the same level. Um, and that could be because their soul has a sensitivity that's really in essence the same thing, even though they couldn't articulate it for themselves. But it just feels, it feels to them to be the same way because their soul feels it. Or they may have, the, 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 it, or the idea of eating pork just so, so clearly seems not Jewish. Their mind creates an association between it and say, going to a church. And that could then trigger, right? So it's, like, it's, not, it's not about understanding. The Alter Rebbe is going to try and deal up understanding, but understanding will never trigger Mr. Snefesh. Because remember, Mr. Snefesh works on a level of the psyche where understanding is completely suspended. It's not relevant. But not trigger Mr. Snefesh, but trigger. Won't trigger Chachma. anything. Won't trigger Chachma. No. Understanding won't trigger Chachma. It will allow you to have a different kind of relationship to Chachma, which gets, ultimately gets to later. So what were you saying does trigger Chachma? Trigger Chachma is anything that clearly goes against God. Is that a sense or understanding? So, that's a sense. If you have to understand, it's not clear. So either that, either it is the denial of God of idolatry itself, which is what Dr. was talking about, or your spirits, you're sensitive enough that you sense the idolatrous aspect in a particular sin, or you have had experiences that create an association between a particular thing and your essential Jewish identity. But none of those things have to do with understanding anything. And that's the key thing. If it has to go through understanding, you won't get Mr. Snefesh. It doesn't work. If rationalization and drawing conclusions is what your mind is doing, the end result can't be the, ne- the, 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 the state of Mr. Snefesh. Yeah, and so it's very important. The algorithm is not trying to get you to trigger Mr. Snefesh. It's not going to work. Right. Now, maybe you could work on being more sensitive. And maybe you could work on association. By the way, a large part of educating children is that, is creating association. It's like a child who gets a good Jewish education, even if they don't understand, right, there should be some part of their consciousness 
which at the very least associates like me being Jewish with keeping kosher, me being Jewish with keeping Shabbos. So as the desire to be Jewish awakens for whatever reason in their life, it gets translated into, you know, observing those mitzvahs. That makes sense? Then there's the other thing that a person just may be some people are more or less spiritually sensitive about certain things than other things. Um, but the point is, when this wakes up, what happens is, is that entire, in, in, because of the absoluteness of Chachma, now it flips around, right? If you have a fire, like, you just, the wax just melts. There's no, there's no place for it. Right? And that's what he goes on to say. All the nations are as nothing before him. Indeed, your enemies, O Lord, indeed your enemies shall perish and be scattered. And a wax melts before fire and perish. The mountains, bleh, the mountains will melt like wax. Brings a lot of verses. How many verses does he bring? How many verses are quoted here? Describing how the, 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 the klipa in a person dissolves away at the moment when the chachn wakes up. How many verses does he quote? Just at the bottom right there? Yep. Four? Three? What? Three? Uh, so it is written, all the nations are nothing before enemies, number one. Mm-hmm. Right? Four. Indeed your enemies, Lord God, shall perish and be scattered too. As wax melts before fire, number three. Mm-hmm. And the mountains will melt like wax, four. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the explanations is that there are actually four levels of klipa in Kabbalah. And so he brings one verse corresponding to each of the four levels. It wasn't just that he was being poetic. Okay. Now, that's an interesting question. If that's the case, which verse corresponds to which one and why? We're not going to go into that. But I just thought it would be nice to know that it's not like arbitrarily that he just finds four verses and throws them there. Okay. Now, So, what is, before we go forward, what is left to be explained? We have covered, right, this all was about the hidden love, right? We, right we've explained how the, every Jew has a, inherits a soul. And that soul has Chachma. And Chachma is capable of having a sense of Hashem which transcends the intellectual process and rationalization, right? And how Chachma generates a passion, a desire to be subsumed within Hashem. And that's not threatening Chachma because even though being subsumed, if you lose your identity, you lose your existence as a distinct entity that doesn't matter to Chachma, right? So that's okay. And how that desire is clothed in our animal soul in exile because our minds are not receptive to the truth of Chachma. Our minds are preoccupied with other things. But when there's an clear, absolute denial of God, the Chachma itself wakes up, and when the Chachma itself wakes up, there's no place for all of those other things, and the love for Hashem is redeemed, right? So what's, what, 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 like, that seems like a good place to end the chapter, right? How is fear included? Very good. We never touched on fear, did we? No. Now we have to get to fear. Okay. So before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about love versus fear generally. First off, I'm sure you have heard that people who have told you that we shouldn't call it fear, we should call it awe. You've heard this before? Okay, let's start there. Why? Not why, do, not why is that correct? What motivates somebody to say that? Like, why would someone say, no, let's not call it fear, let's call it awe. Negative connotation. Negative connotation. So let's, let's, let's open that up. Why does fear have a negative connotation? I'm of things that are Okay. Because you're doing things for a reason Well, I mean, if I'm afraid of crossing the highway because I might get turned into mush, that's definitely for myself. Right? You have to work for it. I mean, sometimes you have to work. I guess that level it has to do with your level of like awareness of reality and mental maturity, right? No, I, I think the first I think the first thing that was said is pretty accurate, right? Is that fear? We like, fear is the appropriate emotion regarding things that can harm us, right? 
And so it seems a little bit weird to, you know, say fear God because that would be putting God in what place? Someone that harms us and that we should conduct ourselves in a manner to avoid the harm that he could bring into our lives. And I could see why you don't want, you don't want to think that. Yes. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Okay. Now. Is it, is it true, by the way? Can God uh, hurt you? Yes. Yes. Does God hurt people? Yes. So is that a reason to be afraid of God? Yes. Yes. So what's wrong with that? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's not nice to be afraid of all the things that can hurt me, but the things that can hurt me are real. And being afraid of them is good because if I'm afraid of them, then I'll avoid them or avoid the ways they can hurt me, right? So what's wrong with being afraid of God? He can hurt people. He does cause hurt to people. So it would be good to be afraid of him so that you minimize how much you get hurt or maybe make sure you don't get hurt at all, Right? What's wrong with that? Like that seems like, like a, a perfect. Place to operate out of. That seems like a wonderfully healthy place to operate out of. <laughs> that is an extremely healthy place to operate out of. Let's think about this, okay? Let's let's let, let's move let's move beyond the propaganda for a moment, okay? There are things in the world that can hurt you. What's <laughs> <laughs> that? There are things that you could hurt you. If if you are afraid of those things. That motivates you to do things or to avoid doing things so that those things don't hurt you. Now, as long as the fear is taking that place, right? That's fine. That's healthy fear. That's what, right? God forbid you don't have fear, right? Then you're this thing we called an adolescent boy, right? And we all know how horrible that ends out. The fear is a good thing. So now, very, very simply, it's kind of a theme in, in the Bible, that if you do the things that God says thou shalt not, what's going to happen? You're going to be punished. Do you want to be punished? No. So should you be, would it be good if you felt a fear of the thing that you don't want to happen to you? Yes. And then you might be motivated to do the things that avoid the thing? Right? That's all about you. Oh, now we've got something. In other words, the problem with fear in that sense is it's about you. It's not that the fear in essence is bad or unhealthy, right? This is, this, is, I, this is a personal pet peeve of mine when people say, oh, you know, doing things because you're afraid of God is unhealthy. It's not true. It's extremely healthy. God runs the world and God is very clear that reward and punishment is a real deal. And it, he is not shy about telling us that punishment is really bad. And as bad as it is in this lifetime, it's much, much worse after we die. And if you have any sense... You should be afraid of things that are extremely painful and damaging, right? Depends how you think your relationship with God. Right. Okay. okay. It could be unhealthy if your relationship with God isn't in that way. So, so, so here, here's the thing. If you have zero relationship with God, but you still are a believer, then you would have fear. Right? The question becomes, and this is what Hasidus gets should we say, uncomfortable about fear is Hasidus is all about, and by the way, not just Hasidus, Kabbalah and other, but the minute we move out of just, I am a believer in the reality of God to having a relationship with God, right? Now I have a problem. So let's go back, right? For instance, um, there are people in your life who can do things that will harm you. Yes? We call those people family. Um, Now, I think we can all acknowledge that, you know, if the primary emotion governing your interaction with a family member is fear to avoid doing things that will then cause harm. I'm not even talking about like serious harm, right? I'm not even talking about abusive behavior, just like whatever. But they can do things that just like even minor levels of harm, just like ongoing unpleasantness or whatever, right? You can't really develop closeness when the emotion governing your interaction with the person is how do I avoid triggering the things that are going to cause them to cause me harm, right? It won't work. So as long as our Judaism is relegated to God is real, the Torah is real, you have to do Torah, and, and, and okay, then fear, you know, fearing God makes, it's very intuitive, makes sense, and it's healthy, very healthy, right? 
So what role does it play? One sec. The minute we move to focusing on Judaism being about closeness with Hashem, we have to now re-examine what is the place of fear. The simple way to do this is you just say, oh, it's not really fear, it's awe. Problem solved. Because awe has positive emotion, positive connotations. And we're done, right? So here's the thing. In the Hasidus, there are five levels of fear. What? Of right. There are five levels of fear, um, depending on how you want to divide them. But if you want to divide them, there, there, there are five levels. General fear or fear in Hashem? Fear in Hashem within the context of having a relationship with Him. So not fear of being punished. Within the context of having a relationship with Hashem, there are five distinct kinds of fear. Okay? Um, and you could really even subdivide that maybe further. Only some of them are called awe in English. And they're not the ones we're talking about to, in chapter 19 or 18. Or many chapters in Tanya for that matter. So, it is, so again, the motivation for saying it's not fear, it's awe only makes sense when I'm moving away from God as a reality to God as someone I want to have a relationship with. So it's not that fear is unhealthy, it's that fear is selfish. It's not that fear is unwarranted, it's that fear is an obstacle to closeness. But as long as like, I'm not interested in closeness with God, right? there's nothing wrong with being afraid that God could hurt me and then therefore following his rules and like, ensuring that my, my life, both in this world and the next, are as good as they could possibly be. What's wrong with that? That seems like how most people live their lives, right? Once we move into making it a relation, we have to examine what exactly is the fear, okay? There are, and again, when we use the word fear, and I'm gonna stick with the word fear, not all the fears can be described, would be really in English, fear is the word, but we call it fear. But we think of fear as, fear is the thing you, you have in terms relating to something which is bad, right? You are afraid of bad things. Well, just think, on the face of it, are there things that are bad in the context of relationship? What would be a bad thing in the context of relationship? Abuse. Jealousy? No, what I mean is like this, like that if we start as a, rela- a relationship as something that is a, 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 the thing that we, va- that we value, we care about, what things would now get labeled as bad because I have a relationship with someone? You have a relationship with your friends? Okay. Are there things that are bad because you're friends with people that if you wouldn't be friends with that person, it wouldn't be bad? Give me an example. Like being rude is bad all around, so that's not it, right? Bad to be rude, period. What's something that's bad only because you have a relationship? There you go, right? Like, the fact that you don't like something, I mean, fine, like, I'm, you don't like it. That doesn't obligate me, right? You know, we're in the public space, right? But if a relationship with somebody, right, and I'm dismissive to their preferences, that's bad, right? That makes sense? If I have no relationship, as long as I'm not, as long as I'm not violating, you know, the basic senses of, of fairness, and I'm like, I'm not, like, you don't like it, so it's your problem, right? Like, I'm playing music. If I'm playing music at a reasonable volume, at a reasonable time of day, and you don't like the music, and it's, it's your problem, it's not my problem, right? But if we have a relationship, right, you're my friend, and you don't like it, and I say, well, it's your problem, well, that's bad in the context of a relationship, right? So you just keep fear exactly what, you, what it meant before. Fear is a feeling we feel towards things which are bad. But... The simple meaning of fear is what? Is that we're afraid of what the bad things that could happen to us when we don't listen to Hashem, which is healthy and reasonable and proper. It's just selfish and an inhibition of being close and creates inhibition of being close to Hashem. If we then jump and say, okay, now a relationship with Hashem is important, that makes a whole new list of things bad in different ways and different forms. And therefore I would feel fear towards those things, right? But fear is still fear, right? It's being afraid. It's not awe. It's not 
It's, it's, it's not overwhelming transcendence. It's fear. It's like actual fear. It's harder to feel that. It's like less concrete. Yes. The fear of the chassis mitzvah is more difficult. But you know what? Here's a strange thing. Most people are much, feel much more fear of violating um, the bad things in these, it, 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 with strangers, the kind of things that are not relationship-based and things that are relationship-based. For instance, um, what's something that's bad like just with other people? Bad thing with other people is being rude, right? Your average person has a, has a fear of being rude to other people in public. It's just, it, it, you know, which creates an inhibition, which most of the time, most people aren't rude to each other, right? Okay. Um, dismissing someone else's preferences, right? It's not really bad in the public space, but it is bad in relationship, right? Um, do we feel a corresponding fear of dismissing, you know, our friends' preferences? We do that all the time, actually. Right? How often do people, like, sit prefer something and we, 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 without even realizing casually belittle it because it just doesn't register as being important to us, right? Whereas if we felt the fear of, of dismissing someone else's preferences because we have a relationship with them, we would be a lot more sensitive to people, right? You're right. The fear of the bad things in a relationship is much harder to cultivate than the fear of things which are just, so, you know, just basic socialization. Similarly speaking, which fear is actually harder to cultivate? The fears that Hasidus speaks about or the fear like you, you know, that God really does punish people and it's not a good idea to mess with that. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a rule. Like, if you're, if you're afraid of separation with God but you're not afraid of him smacking you if you sin, that means one of two things. Either you're fooling yourself or you don't really believe he's going to punish you. So either you're delusional or a heretic. I prefer delusional because, like, that's, worse, that's less of a problem. But it's like, it doesn't, like that, that's the most basic thing. God has created the world and he's like, this is the way it works and I do reward and I do punish people. And, like, there's not, like... You know, what, what, there's a reality to those things. What Chassid is saying, yeah, but, but if you make that your whole religious life, right, you're A, selfish, and B, you've created an obstacle to a relationship with Hashem, so let's change the point of reference. So you see how fear remains fear? It's not love. It's not I want to be close to Hashem. It's being afraid because something bad could happen. And I don't want bad things to happen because they're bad. It's fear. Love, fear, not the same thing. Okay, Wednesday we will continue and we'll learn about how there is fear that is included in this love. And I also have to tell you why it's called the hidden love and not the hidden fear. If they're both there, why do we call it by the name of love? All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.